So if you didn't hear me earlier in the program, you need to call the governor and urge uh, him to put his signature on this bill. 617-725-4005. Write that on the the back of your hand. Get a pen right now. Write it on the (laughs) back of your hand. Call the governor. Steve Sherlock for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet at WFPR.FM and in the local Franklin Mass FM dial at 102.9. Here today for another session of Making Sense of Climate, I've got my guide, Ted McIntyre. And Ted, we have a special guest with us today. I am thrilled to be part of this conversation. Absolutely. And State Rep. Jeff Roy, it's good to see you in this virtual mode, and we appreciate (laughs) taking time from your schedule, I know you've got some busy things do happening because the major piece that we want to talk about is still in the air, literally. In the air, it's uh, it's down uh, to one person, um, the governor of the Commonwealth. Um, I said in my remarks the other day uh, of the 6.4 million people in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, one was selected to decide things of this nature. And uh, that happens to be the governor. So uh, the bill has been through both chambers, uh, the House and the Senate, twice. It now sits on his desk, and uh, he has the choice, um, only three choices. He can sign it, and it becomes law. He can veto it, and it comes back to the legislature. Or he can uh, take no action and it comes becomes law without his signature. So uh, he has until August 11th uh, to make that determination. And uh, I have said to folks that, uh, you know, I was a trial lawyer before I got into the legislature and uh, waiting for verdicts from juries was probably the most knot tying experience I had uh, as a trial lawyer. And that's exactly how I feel. Uh, waiting for the verdict uh, from the governor um, as to whether he's going to sign the bill. Mm, Indeed. Uh, And for the listeners to just help frame the conversation while we're attempting to today, certainly if you've been listening to our continuing series of making sense of climate and yeah, helping Steve make sense of climate and Ted's been our chief guide. We've had some other guests along the way and State Rep. Roy is our Franklin representative, but also holding the unique position as chair of the TUA, the Technology, Utilities, and Energy. Did I get that right? Telecommunications. Telecommunications. Yeah. Uh, Committee, which then gave you the role to, as you said, marshal the climate bill through both chambers, through the conference committee as well. Now it's sitting on the governor's desk. So what we want to do today is kind of frame, okay, what's in the bill? What do we need to know about it? And then clearly the decision, we may have to come back depending after August 11th and find out what happens and see what the next steps are. But Ted, why don't we start framing it in terms of this, you know, where it plays in the roadmap, because this yeah. clearly is part of the roadmap this that we've been working clear, with. So this is what I would describe as a, landmark, broad and deep bill that uh, Representative Roy has, as you say, marshaled through the 
the vicissitudes of the legislature. It touches on a lot of things. As I was reading it, I just kept nodding, saying, yep, yep, that's good, that's good, that's good, and, and the list went on and on. It, branch, it, it goes from uh, uh, efforts to make the wind industry better. It goes to efforts to make transit, and particularly focus on electric vehicles, but transit better. Um, it thinks about stuff that we have touched on, Steve, of uh, building the grid. I mean, we've talked many times about how we're going to get power down from Maine or, or you know, on, on shore. So there's a ton of really good provisions in the bill that are in service to the roadmap, the 2030 roadmap, where we need to go. And I think that's the way I'd put the question to Representative Roy is like, what's in the bill? What should people know about it? Why should it be signed? How does it help us get to our 2030 roadmap goals and and congratulations by the way for getting it this far we're all we're all with behind you so tell me what what is in the bill what should people know about it well before i get into that i need to ask have you called the governor yet to ask him to sign the bill <laughs> i have i did uh, i did the first time around but i'm about i will so we will I while you're talking, I will look up the number and we will list up the governor's number to tell him to, to call. Well, I'm going to save you that because uh, I happen to have handy. it right here. <laughs> uh, somebody had asked me that very question last night, uh -huh. and uh, I am going to uh, share that with you. So uh, the office is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And uh -huh. the telephone number is 617-725-725. 4005. Again, 617 725 4005. So, um, and that's like, you, that looks like the title of this podcast. Perfect. <laughs> yes. That's the, yes. That's the name. <laughs> yeah. And other than taking notes on that for the listeners, the show notes, as you may have seen for the new ones, you wouldn't know per se, but the show notes will be chock full of the links to the various pieces that we discussed. So, clearly, the link to the legislation itself. I believe you shared already the video of your uh, closing remarks advocating for this from the floor. That's a YouTube video. We'll share that so that you don't have to take notes other than, and we'll give the reminder as well in terms of calling the governor so we can get this moved. And with that, sure. Jeff, you can uh, lead us through it. So um, as, uh, as Ted pointed out in 2021, uh, I was uh, brand new to this committee. And uh, that was in February of 2021. We had a roadmap bill, which was setting uh, the goal of getting uh, Massachusetts to net zero by 2050. And we set a number of benchmarks uh, every five years along that pathway to getting to net zero. And it was putting the goals in place. What this 2022 bill is all about is. How do we implement so that we can reach those goals? Um, I took the approach at the beginning of the discussion that in order for us to meet those goals uh, of electrification, we needed to uh, develop a robust source of new clean energy that we could harness that could feed the needs that we have. And uh, I happened to come into uh, this office at a time when the discussions were really ramping up about offshore wind. We had a new president in the White House who set a goal in his first few months 
of getting 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in the United States by 2030. The way Massachusetts is situated geographically and with uh, the leasing areas that have already been approved off of the coast of Massachusetts, we are equipped to deliver one third of that national goal. That's 10 gigawatts that we can get off of the coast of Massachusetts. So I look at that and I say, this is where we ought to be focusing a lot of our, our effort. And uh, the bill uh, is carefully calibrated to attract robust clean energy, world-class manufacturing facilities, intensive workforce training initiatives, and the investments that are necessary to prepare our electric distribution system for the energy needs of the future. That, in a nutshell, is what this bill is all about. And during uh, my tenure as the chair of uh, this committee, we became home to the nation's first utility-scale offshore wind farm in November. Uh, and I have the shovel right over there mm -hmm. uh, in my office to prove it. We broke ground for where the first uh, power line is going to come in from the turbines that are located 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. It's at Covels Beach in Bonstable. And when that project is done and it's connected to New England's power grid in 2023, those turbines will power 400,000 homes. They'll create 3,600 jobs and they'll save the emissions equivalent of taking 325,000 cars off the road for a year. That's incredible. And that's just phase one of uh, what we have done uh, in terms of um, expanding offshore wind. In the roadmap bill, we uh, required uh, the administration to get 5,600 megawatts of wind energy. So that's 5.6 gigawatts. It's a little more than half of the, uh, the one third goal that I talked about earlier, but we directed the administration to get 5,600 megawatts of offshore wind up and running by 2027. Uh, so the first one was uh, Vineyard Wind, which was 800 uh, megawatts. We have right after Vineyard Wind is done, we have Mayflower Wind coming in to do 1,200 megawatts. And we just had round three of the bidding, uh, which uh, was an additional 1,200 megawatts. So we are at 3,200 megawatts under contract right now. And uh, we're hoping that when the new administration comes in in January 2023, we will be seeking another procurement uh, hopefully for the remaining 2,400 that's uh, been authorized. Uh, if they want to do it in packages of 1,200 and 1,200, that's okay too. But uh, I would suggest that probably in the next legislative session, uh, at least I will be pushing for additional procurements to get us up to that uh, 10 gigawatt goal uh, and serve um you know, serve one third of the, the national goal. And I think we need to go beyond that. So uh, that's a big part of this bill is developing a robust source of energy. So we focus a lot on offshore wind, but we also know that we have 
the hydro product project that's uh, coming from Quebec, which now sits in the hands of the main Supreme Court. Uh, but that, you know, should that pan out, there's a source of clean energy. Uh, we've been in discussions with um, folks. Uh, in fact, the Senate president and, and the state of Maine reached out to me and said, would Massachusetts be interested in procuring onshore wind from northern Maine in Aroostook County? Mm. And uh, we authorized the uh, administration to enter into negotiations with other states to procure uh, additional clean power. So, uh, you know, we're looking at those. We have uh, storage pieces in this bill because in in order for this all to work, we've got uh, uh, the wind doesn't blow all the time. The sun doesn't shine all the time. So we need to store this energy uh, for use in those intermittent periods. So uh, we have a lot of effort towards uh, energy storage solutions, be that, uh, uh, you know, battery storage facilities, uh, where, or we even look at the existing hydro storage facilities. Uh, I know, Ted, you came out to, with me to visit ISO. Um, I do plan on getting out to uh, Western Mass to visit one of the big batteries that they have up in the mountain. Uh, where they pump water up to a reservoir at the top of the mountain. And when there's a demand for energy, uh, they uh, open the floodgates and that water pours down the mountain and generates uh, power. Uh, those are called uh, the world's largest batteries. Uh, Northfield is one. Or I, I, I'm losing the name of the second one. But I, Jeff, I just, if I could just, once, yeah. I just wanted to make sure, uh, reiterate a point you were making is that Part of the roadmap, part of the, the strategy is what's called electrification, which is a yeah. funny word. You might not recognize what it means, but essentially it means your, your car is going to be an electric vehicle. Your home is going to be heated by electricity. Everything becomes electric because you don't burn anything anymore. You don't burn any natural gas. The imperative. So if you suddenly think that you're going to have cars and homes being heated, they used to get fossil fuels now coming from electricity. The demand for raw electric power is huge, right? So the prerequisite Absolutely. for the electricity that's going to give you a heat pump in an electric vehicle has to be new wind turbines. So uh, that's the connection that that people that people need to get. That the electrification of everything—it's a buzzword—that everything becomes electric instead of uh, any other source heightens the demand for more and more electricity. And so you wisely focused on the wind turbine and the grid sections of it and i just as a as i grew up in new bedford so i'm very proud of the idea that uh new bedford's going to have a lot of uh, wind industry with all the associated good but i mean i i think that's uh bears reiterating that this is your strategy is the electrification of everything requires electricity and so let's make the electricity yeah. first and and let me put that in context for you and uh, i just pulled out my iso app which i have on my phone, uh, and I wanted to see what the fuel mix was uh, for today, okay? And I'm sure that the listeners of your program know what the ISO app is because you've educated them about that. So it's uh, very hot out there, very toasty, uh, typical August day, and 72% of the energy that's needed for today is natural gas. So, if we're not going to be burning things and we're not going to be uh, using natural gas, 
then we need to come up with something that's going to replace 72% of our energy needs. And that was really a lot of the discussion we were having uh, as a committee. And how do we do that? And I was convinced the only way to do that is to focus on uh, developing robust sources of energy. So a lot of attention was paid uh, to that issue. And, uh, you know, I just look at this app and 72% natural gas, 19% nuclear, 7% renewables, 2% hydro. Uh, you know, that's, tell that's the story, a typical <laughs> summer scenario. You know, when we were getting the cold snaps in the winter, uh, oil was in the mix, you know, and uh, natural gas was high. So that that really does tell a huge picture and why we focus so much on developing a source of energy. Legislature says you will procure X amount of uh, wind energy, some number of gigawatts, right? What Who gets told to do what? Does the, the DOER solicits bids? I bet yes, no- they, they'll do, uh, they'll do a, an RFP process where they will say, this is what we're looking for. And in fact, if you look at the bill that we passed, we adjusted some of the uh, things that we want them to look for. We wanted more economic development. Uh, we want diversity, equity, inclusion. We want uh, environmental protections and fisheries mitigation. So we spelled that all out to the administration. It is the uh, Department of Energy Resources, DOER. They will uh, develop the RFP and then they'll send it out to the world and uh, attract bids. One of the curious things is we we have not received um, many bids. And one of the complaints we heard is that Massachusetts has a um, a price cap that is not in, in enticing to companies to come in. And the price cap was put in place uh, in 2016 when we were initially getting involved in the offshore wind space. And, uh, you know, there were concerns that uh, offshore wind was going to come in in the 15 to 25 cent range. It was going to be really pricey and nobody would buy it. So we put a price cap in place to make sure that we didn't have these outrageous uh, prices. Well, lo and behold, uh, wind energy comes in at six and a half cents and 5.8 cents. So um, you know, we realized, hey, we really can relax on the price cap. The governor uh, wanted to relax the price cap. Uh, the House wanted to relax the price cap and uh, the Senate was not really on board. Uh, they did eventually come around uh, when we did the amendments uh, last week. But uh, what we're trying to do is to get more players into this uh, area, more companies to bid. There are four major be, companies. When, Jeff, when you say bid, I just want to, again, to be clear, what we're talking about is like big firms, a contractor will come in and say, I have enough financial power to build a wind farm off Massachusetts. And I, right. if you pay me X cents per kilowatt hour, I will go ahead and build that. Right. So you're looking exactly. for corporate players to make a bid and attracting those. Oh, we have Mayflower Wind, right? Which is based well, on- Well, we have a Vineyard Wind. Vineyard Wind, right, right. We right. have Mayflower Wind. Uh, and the two players that uh, have not uh, made a, a, a bid in Massachusetts are Orsted, which has its company headquarters in Massachusetts, but they didn't bid into this market, and Equinor, 
has not bid into this market. So by removing the price cap, we're enticing them to bid into this market, but we're also saying bring some jobs to Massachusetts, bring some manufacturing facilities to Massachusetts, bring some uh, economic opportunity to Massachusetts. We have been uh, saying that message for over a year. And I will say that the uh, the last bid that came in, I think these companies are, were hearing us loud and clear because uh, the last bid that came in included a manufacturing facility at Brayton Point in Somerset. Now, I'm not sure if you are familiar or the, your listeners are familiar, but let me tell you, Brayton Point was the home to the last coal-fired plant in Massachusetts. Uh, it went up in smoke in, uh, in about five years ago. They had an implosion of the towers uh, down in Brayton Point, and people were watching it on TV or mm -hmm. out in boats. It was mm -hmm. a, a huge symbolic move to get Massachusetts out of coal. However, it left 42 barren acres in Brayton Point in Somerset. And uh, having this manufacturing facility come in and set up a shop on that 42 acres, they are going, it's an Italian manufacturer called Prismium. They are going to manufacture all of the cables that are going to bring the power from the turbines to the land. Uh, and conceivably, they will be manufacturing the cables for the entire East Coast. Company is expected to deliver two to 300 jobs at that particular location. And it's such a poetic uh, change of use uh, for that land. And the people uh, of Somerset are embracing it and uh, I think breathing a deep sigh of relief that uh, the transformation that happened in their backyard. Hey, Jeff, you're completely right. I think you just said poetic, which is, I, re, I mean, I have driven across the Braga Bridge many times and seen that power plant. I was attending protests against the power plant before it shut down. And the people in the town were legitimately afraid of the loss of the tax base, the jobs, the, the, you know, it, but the transformations come about. So now I think, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say the town is much more supportive and enthusiastic because there's this clean facility there. And it's a wonderful example of what can be done, right? Where we're headed if we're smart, right? It's absolutely. And I think you know, to so reinforce that point, I think one of the key pieces as I've been reading and following along, um, clearly to go from, as you referenced the data, the 72%, 70 plus percent of natural gas getting to another piece, that's a shift. That's a transition. It's not going to happen overnight, but it needs to start. And by making the moves, as I understand, you've been dealing with the legislation and then hopefully the governor will sign and thereby embody in the process. That's creating the infrastructure truly that will either hopefully build and thereby increase the jobs, uh, will provide the greenness that we need from an electrical perspective. And then there's going to be domino effects all the way along, because as that electricity starts coming, then we'll have to be preparing both in the homes and in the buildings to shift as well from the oil burners, the gas burners to the heat pumps. And there's another source of you know, labor resources that are either going to have to be put together and or trained, retrained from, say, the fuel guy now delivering a heat pump, right, 
there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think that's really what one of the key aspects of the, the legislation, as I understand, and certainly roadmap and meeting that, all of those things need to be in there as well. Yeah. And uh, so let me give you a little highlight of how we do this. Okay. I talked to you about removing the price cap. We also set up uh, an offshore wind industry investment program and a trust fund that we're going to put money in to offer incentives uh, to companies uh, to promote manufacture, fabrication, and assembly uh, of domestic supply chain components in the offshore wind industry. Uh, We're going to um, advocate and advance clean energy research and technology and innovation with, you know, uh, looking uh, for ways to uh, make this wind power uh, more efficient and uh, ways to, you know, maybe the shape of the blades, the material that the blades are, are made of. We have some of the best research institutions in the world right here in Massachusetts. So we're gonna capitalize on that. And we're also gonna use some of that money to prepare individuals for offshore wind careers. Uh, So we're gonna do workforce training. Uh, One component of this bill uh, will offer incentives to high schools to offer industry recognized credentialing in the offshore wind industry to get kids excited uh, about this new industry uh, right now. We're gonna offer $35 million in annual tax incentives to uh, invite people to uh, create jobs and uh, spend capital investments here. So so one of the uh, ways to get a tax incentive is if you uh, have a commitment to create at least 50 net new permanent full-time employees within the state, you're eligible for a tax credit. And if you uh, spend at least $35 million in capital investments for an offshore wind facility and employ at least 200 new full-time employees, you'll be eligible for a tax credit. And we have a clawback. So if you don't deliver what you said you're gonna deliver, we're taking it back. Um, I outlined some of the changes in the offshore wind procurement process in terms of what preferences we want the administration to give uh, and what we require the bids to look like and uh, removing the price cap. That's part of it. Uh, We have a commercial fisheries commission that's established in this. It's going to work with the fishermen uh, in uh, down in New Bedford, all the way up to Gloucester and, uh, you know, make sure that uh, they're going to be able to stay in business. Jim, uh, since you mentioned, let me, I just had this image. You were talking about workforce training, offshore wind workforce training, right? And so yeah. this thing flashed in my head of modern day analog of the fishermen of Gloucester. You know, that statue in Gloucester where the guy is Absolutely. sailing, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be an offshore wind turbine worker, right? There's a whole culture because yeah. you have to go out and there's hundreds of these wind turbines eventually. You need to service them. It is, it is an adventurous life. And I don't know, maybe there'll be a statue there someday. I have, Maybe you'll uh, be the well, model, Jeff. You can be the model for the. Uh, for the- <laughs> I have done some of the training, believe it or not. Uh, there's a company here in Massachusetts that's created a, a virtual reality reality module for repairing a nacelle. The nacelle is the the unit that's that at the top of the turbine. So um, I actually participated in this training program 
by hopping onto a boat, driving out to the turbine, climbing up onto the turbine, uh, climbing the ladder up to the top of the turbine, entering the nacelle, taking my tools and uh, moving around in the nacelle to make adjustments uh, to the equipment. Uh, all done in virtual reality, a uh, much safer way to train mm -hmm. an employee how to work this. Mass Maritime Academy has uh, a whole program down there already training future employees in this industry. And we're also building, as part of Bristol Community College, uh, a wind center down in New Bedford. Uh, and, you know, you want some more poetry? Well, you know, 100 years ago, uh, New Bedford lit the world with whale oil. And uh, today they're going to light and power the world with uh, with offshore wind. So more poetry there. And I'll even take you further up north, up to Salem. Salem, uh, the port in Salem offers an incredible opportunity for delivery of these Jones Act vessels. None of the other ports in Massachusetts uh, can uh, host a, a Jones Act uh, vessel What's because, uh, for example, uh, th th these these huge monster ships, uh, they can't get under the bridges to Brayton Point. And in in New Bedford, there's a hurricane wall uh, that has a passage area that's too small for one of these vessels. Mm. So Salem offers a deep water port, and with some investments there, uh, we can turn that into the hub for offshore wind delivery systems. Uh, Maine is looking at offshore wind and they'll take deliveries uh, through Salem. And, and here's the beauty of Salem. Salem was also the home for a coal-fired plant. They removed that coal-fired plant and they replaced it with a, uh, a highly efficient natural gas uh, power plant. But that natural gas power plant has a 50-year license. In 2050, that facility closes. And I believe if we get Salem up and running, uh, that that will uh, be another transfer of offshore energy replacing a retiring natural gas facility. So lots of amazing things happening uh, in Massachusetts. And this legislation can really uh, push us forward. And and I joke with some of the young people in the state house when we talk about it. I said, look, at, I said, uh, I'm going to be 89 years old in uh, 2050. So uh, probably not going to benefit tremendously uh, other than I'll be living in a beautifully air conditioned uh, uh, old age home. But uh, for you folks, this is your future and we're watching what's happening in the world with uh, with droughts and fires and floods and uh you know warming oceans uh we're doing something today uh to protect this planet for you and your future and uh, we owe it to you and uh, we're, we're going to deliver and uh, i'm going to remind folks that we can't do that without the governor's signature on this bill so if you didn't hear me earlier in the program, you need to call the governor and urge uh, him governor. to put his signature on this bill. 617-725-4005. Write that on the, on the back of your hand. Get a pen right now. Write it on the back <laughs> of your hand and call the governor. You know, some other features of this bill that, uh, that I didn't touch upon. So that's the robust energy. 
Um, but we also have to make the grid uh, ready for the delivery of all of this energy. So in this bill, we call for um, some independent transmission transmission planning, asking the administration to look at whether they can solicit pro proposals in conjunction and coordination with other states for uh, independent transmission to deliver offshore wind to the existing grid. We also create a clean energy transmission working group that's going to analyze the costs, the cost allocation measures and regional coordination opportunities for uh, taking care of transmission of this energy. Then but we- Transmission, Jeff, forgive me for interrupting. Transmission yeah. again, we're talking about power lines capable of carrying all this great electricity that we've generated. That needs to be right. uh, integrated into existing power lines and new ones and, and, and I congratulate you and the, and the legislature because it's increasingly clear that there is a regional thing here that, that extends beyond Massachusetts. So yeah. coordinating with other states is critically important, I think, right. too. And sort and of, to, yeah, we're, we're encouraging and giving the administration authorization to do it on a regional basis. Then you look at our, our grid. We establish a grid modernization uh, planning council that has to see so transmission is getting the power from the huge power lines uh, and from the turbines into the land. Once it gets in the land, then it goes into our grid. And how do we move this power along from that transmission line to the plugs uh, in your home? And uh, the grid was designed uh, for a system where power moved in one direction. And uh, with people putting solar panels on their homes and, uh, you know, I've seen uh, windmills on, on property, uh, we need to develop a grid that moves in multiple ways so that we can take advantage of all that solar energy that you have on your house and put it back into the grid. Uh, we can uh, set up the battery storage uh, facilities that we need. Uh, and move this power uh, cleanly and efficiently through the system. So that's uh, typically something that's done by the Department of Public Utilities. But I will say in all candor, we have not been impressed with the level of speed uh, that they have been pursuing this particular issue. So um, this Grid Modernization Planning Council will light a fire uh, on those efforts to modernize our, our grid. And then, you know, then we move into the, the green transportation sectors, uh, the electric vehicles that we talked about earlier, the electric buses that we want to get to, the electric trains that we want to get to. And uh, I'll, I'll share with you, uh, we did receive some criticism that, uh, that we are banning gas-powered vehicles in 2035. And I say, I'd love to take credit for that, but that's not something that's in this bill. In fact, that's something we did back in 1991 when we tied our emission standards to those in California. And uh, we embraced California's emission standards and they're gonna ban gas powered vehicles by 2035. So that comes down to Massachusetts. And in fact, when the governor issued his plan in December of 2021, he, he banned gas powered vehicles after 2035. What we did in this bill to further that effort was said that any dealer that sells a gas-powered vehicle after 2035 would be violating the Consumer Protection Act. So 
Um, yeah, we did something on the gas-powered vehicles, but uh, I'm not patting myself on the back for uh, getting the ban underway because that was done uh, long before uh, we we got here. And uh, the other piece is uh, building decarbonization. We know that buildings are responsible for uh, so much of our emissions, so we uh, we do some. Uh, promotion of geothermal technology. Uh, we uh, do some uh, further incentives for buildings to uh, convert. We require the larger buildings to uh, issue reports on the emission, emissions that are coming from their buildings. We incorporated some changes to Mass Save, which is the consumer program that uh, most people who have an audit of their home, uh, that's done under Mass Save. And then that provides you with some incentives to put the heat pumps or highly efficient devices in your home. And Jeff, well, that's we, an important, I think, I, correct yep. me, that's an important sort of new thing is that Mass Save is basically help you decarbonize by um, working with on the heat pump stuff. Right? And, then, yes. and that's new, right, in this yeah. bill, which is a great thing, right? Right. And we're telling them in their next plan. So right now you still can get incentives for, um, you know, fossil fuel equipment, uh, highly efficient um, uh, boiler is covered under mass safe currently, but in the next plan that they issue, uh, which will be in about three years, uh, we've told them uh, no more incentives for fossil fuel uh, equipment uh, in the next thing. And an interesting piece that uh, uh, is part of the bill is uh, trying a pilot program allowing 10 communities uh, to ban fossil fuel in any new construction uh, or major renovation. I will say, and I'll admit clear cut that I wasn't a fan of this proposal because I thought uh, it was giving rich communities a way to push uh, fossil fuels out of their communities and it was gonna have an impact on, on poorer or environmental justice communities. And I said, you know, we should all be in this together. Uh, in the roadmap bill, we asked the uh, we asked the administration to develop a new specialized stretch energy code that would deal with these issues. Let's let's let that take place. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you have to compromise, and uh, I did compromise on this particular component, uh, but insisted that uh, before a community could participate, they had to be compliant uh, with 40B, in that they had. 10% affordable housing uh, in their community before they could apply. And we also exempted life sciences labs, hospitals, and uh, other healthcare facilities from that requirement because they need uh, power and uh, electrification is not at the stage that could run a lab or a medical facility. And finally, we have robust reporting requirements for that pilot in that we want to see some data and we want to see uh, if, if that pilot program has been effective in reducing emissions and uh, helping us achieve our goals. I mean, those are, uh, you know, that's what yep, this is are, all about. I, those are know? great. I mean, I, I appreciate your sort of sensitivity to the fact that the way the gas system disappears is going to perhaps unduly burden people who are in disadvantaged communities. That's an important thing. And, and so I think that's a great, for my money, that's a great addition. And I think that the, the lessons learned aspect of keeping track of what 
the consequences of these 10 towns, because what you want you do in my mind, the justification of the 10 towns is to learn how to, how it all goes. Right. So the tracking after the fact is again, a value add that I think is really a good, uh, a good piece. So, yeah. And, and it's, you know, look at, we, we're all in this together and uh, we don't want to unfairly burden those communities who have not um, up to now really had the benefit of uh, real clean, renewable energy. We want to make sure that they have a seat at the table and that they're not getting the burden of uh, dirty fuel while certain communities are uh, 100% clean. So um, we've seen a track record in the past that, uh, you know, you look at uh, the the uh, biomass plant that they were trying to build in Springfield, uh, which has some of the highest rates of asthma uh, anywhere. And, uh, you know, we, we, we closed the door on that. You know, you can't continue to put these dirty plants uh, in and make people sick. Uh, you know, we have a responsibility. We have an obligation. And we I think we met those duties and obligations in so many ways uh, with this bill. And, you know, it was it's the result of compromise that was, you know, hard fought throughout this process. And uh, there was a lot of give and take uh, by everyone to get us to this stage. And uh, when I was uh, making my remarks, because, you know, I've I've heard the governor is not terribly thrilled with everything that's in the bill. And uh, he wanted some further changes. We made some of those changes. We didn't make others. And uh, I said, the art of compromise got us to where we are today with this bill. And and I shared with uh, uh, my colleagues when I was doing my remarks, I said, uh, I read a good description of, of compromise recently from a book. And I want to share that with you. And I'm going to share that with your listeners right now, Mm because this is what it says in that book. It says compromise comes from an understanding that we all have different life experiences, perspectives, and interests. It acknowledges that there are multiple ways to achieve the same end and multiple steps along the way. Compromise recognizes not only specific interests, but also the interests of the whole community. It can be the forerunner of progress in breaking the rigidity of all or nothing and the gridlock that may ensue. Now, here's the uh, interesting piece. That excerpt is from the book Results, Getting Beyond Politics to Get Important Work Done. And the author of that book is none other than our governor from the book that he published just a few weeks ago. And I think that line speaks to who he is as a person and what this moment is all about. And we're calling on him to compromise. He didn't get everything that he wanted in the bill. I didn't get everything that I wanted in the bill. The Senate didn't get everything they wanted in the bill. The Senate president didn't get what she wanted. The speaker didn't get what he wanted. The minority leaders in both chambers didn't get what they wanted. But we came together and and many of us have different thoughts about what should be there. We all walk away a little unhappy, and that tells me that we created a good bill because we all recognize there's no single correct way to get things done, uh, and sometimes we have to compromise for the greater good. And 
I'm calling on the governor to compromise for the greater good, because as we outlined here today, there are some great things in this bill that will make meaningful steps towards uh, curbing further global warming and climate change damage uh, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, the time is now. This is uh, the president came to Massachusetts two weeks ago and said climate change is a clear and present danger. We can't wait. It's urgent. We need to act now. And he needs to sign that bill. Did I mention that earlier? I think you did. Thank you. We'll, say it again. we'll, we'll make sure people it. listen. <laughs> now, I think this has been insightful, um, enlightening. Um, the art of compromise, certainly for us, in particular in the Commonwealth of Mass, that's kind of been one of the themes where, as Ted and I and others have been talking through the roadmap, it seems like different aspects have had disconnects along the way. And I appreciate the efforts of the art of compromise coming together so to rectify so that we can go forward with less of those disconnects. It's not a perfect world. Things will still happen, but you've also built into it the lessons learned aspect. So, okay, let's let the 10 communities go off and do the pilot before we have the other 340 try to go down the road and we find out it's the wrong way to go. Let's let's build that in so we can do the right thing what, and and get to the better place, which we're all getting older and the young certainly going to benefit more from it as we go forward. So um, thank you for your efforts to that extent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, I am I am. And I said it to the speaker um, when the session ended uh, Monday morning, I walked up to him on the rostrum and I just said, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity that uh, you gave me to to do this work. Um, it's been so meaningful. Um, it was a challenge. I I'm exhausted uh, at the end of this uh, session, and uh, uh, but it's it's some real important work, and uh, I'm grateful that uh, he had the confidence in me to uh, to do it, and uh, I I think uh, it helps. Uh, that uh, I have a community uh, in Franklin and Medway who uh, gave, me th gave me this opportunity 10 years ago and uh, had the confidence in me. And uh, I hope that they see uh, that this is delivering on uh, the promises uh, that I made uh, 10 years ago and every two years uh, thereafter. Put in the additional plug, the call the governor. <laughs> Email the governor, contact him, use whatever channels you can, um, because as Jeff has mentioned before at the beginning, he has three actions due by the 11th. He can sign it. He can do nothing and let it go. Both of those would really be good. At least we get where we need to be immediately. And there's still a whole lot of work to do. And then unfortunately, if he does veto it, that work just gets a little bit harder in terms of time sensitivity. It doesn't go away. Stay tuned. We'll probably be back for another session, <laughs> clearly after August 11th, and we'll give you some chance to figure out, oh, what, what just happened? <laughs> How do we do this? What do we do from here? Um, yep. So that the listeners will be able to come along the, the road as we get towards a, a, a better set of climate uh, in the Commonwealth and, and as well beyond that, because clearly it's not just us. There's a whole lot of folks with us. Great. 
Well, I thank you guys for uh, doing this uh, series. It's been incredible. And, uh, you know, uh, I always tell people, I say, I, I have a gem in my community and in, in Ted McIntyre, who's been teaching me about climate issues for, uh, for years. And uh, I'm just glad that uh, I got put in a position where I could actually do something about it. And uh, Steve, you've been uh, educating this community for 20 years and uh, putting the, together this whole program on the climate issues has been uh, great. And I've enjoyed it and I'm, I'm glad that you did it. And uh, I'm glad that uh, I got a chance to, to weigh in and uh, share with uh, what I've been doing. So thank you. Yeah, well, I'm not quite at 20 years yet, but it certainly feels like 20. <laughs> well, you were there when I started on the school committee, so I'm I'm just trying to do the math. Yeah, yeah. The time just flies because we're having some fun. So, you know, <laughs> well, thank you both for participating today. For the listeners, thank we you for listening to this. In collaboration with Franklin we will come back TV for more. and Franklin and we do Public this Radio. All because this podcast Franklin is my public matters. service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.